Welcome to the Tour Talk Golf Podcast, where we walk the walk. Now let's talk the talk. I'm your co-host, Sean McBride, together with my wife, Maria. We share our Inside the Ropes experience from all the major golf tours. How was everybody's weekend? How was your Monday? How was your Tuesday going? Hope you all had a great weekend, spent some invaluable time with friends and family, maybe. Maybe just enjoyed your own company. And that's what I'm having to do again for this podcast, week number two, because Maria is traveling for the second week in a row. I must have done something correct week one for her to feel comfortable enough to go away week two. So she is heading to an LPGA event, destination Portland, Oregon, and it's a beautiful place to go. Maria has got into this event based on career money earnings. So after last week heading to Maine and playing in a seniors event with Michelle McGann and the girls did really well up there, finishing a nice little podium, finishing second to legend Pat Bradley. Michelle and Maria had a great week, uh, spent with some really good friends of Michelle McGann. Maria made some really good contacts, played some fantastic golf. And she's now looking forward to going back and reconnecting with the West Coast of America on the LPGA. It was always a great place to go, Portland, Oregon, on the LPGA schedule at a golf course called Columbia Edgewater. Maria didn't have a great deal of success there during the prime of her career, so you never know post-prime if she could go back there uh, with lower expectations. Maybe, just maybe, she might get a podium this week. You never, ever know. So whenever Maria plays an LPGA event, and she played in Atlantic City uh, mid-year, and now she's playing in Portland, and I must admit between uh, Atlantic City and Portland, she's played a lot more competitive golf. So she should be going to Portland feeling a lot better about her game versus uh, going into Atlantic City where she really hadn't played a lot at all for nearly a year. So she's played quite a few seniors events between Atlantic City and Portland. And she's looking going looking to go back to this LPGA event in Portland and play better. So whenever she plays an event, I always have a little reflection on what was my history with this event there as a caddy or did Maria play really well? Did she uh, um, run a top 10? Did she win the event or whatever? So um, speaking on my behalf as a professional caddy on for some of the girls at the LPGA event in Portland. I never really had a great week there, to be quite honest. I was caddying for Rachel Hetherington, who was a top 10 player for most of her career. And every time we went there, I thought, we're a big chance here because she's a straight driver of the ball. It's a very tight golf course, very tree-lined with these tall, tall pine trees that you get over there in Portland. Um, so a tight driving golf course backed up by really fast, firm greens. So Rachel never really got into contention there, despite her being an accurate driver and a good pace putter. So um, she did probably struggle to hold the greens. They were pretty firm, and we never really got it close enough to get into contention. Now, Maria, um, you know, driving for her is an asset, but being long as she is, uh, it's taken away a little bit because driving accuracy is really important. She never really kept the ball in play as much as she wanted to during the prime of her career and probably didn't put those greens as much as, uh, as well as she would like to either. So um, Portland's always been a bit of a challenge for her. But like I said, um, she's now post-prime in her career uh, with all due respect 
um, little lower expectations and she might be enjoying other parts of going back there and I wouldn't be surprised if that influences a really good result as well. So the only good result I can remember having there, to be quite honest, was for a girl called Joanna Head and she ended up marrying... Uh, she's now called Joe Mundy, and she her husband is Terry Mundy, and Terry caddies for Ian Poulter on the PGA slash Live Tour for many many years. And um, I do remember going there one year after after spending a good six months caddying for Joe. She always had intermittent caddies, you know, guys that had either just been fired. She couldn't quite find a regular caddy, only because she was. Um, you know, quite workmanlike in her career. She never really broke into the top echelon of top 20 golf. She was always in and around making cuts, missing cuts, but she had a good solid career. She came close to earning uh, nearly a million dollars in her career. So this particular year when I was caddying for her, uh, we just had some good energy going and she got to this golf course in Portland and ran her first top 10 and only top 10, I think, on the LPJ. Uh, circuit. So well done to Joanna Head that particular year. Um, it made a big difference, I will say, to her, um, oh, just to her credibility on the tour. I, sh- I felt like for years she was just trying to struggle to get a top 10 and this particular year we got it done. So well done to Joanna Head. That's really my only great memory of Portland golfing result-wise. I will say it's a beautiful place to be in and around there. Maria did win just up the road in Seattle. Her first victory came in 1999. Uh, So Seattle, Portland has been a a kind place to Maria. Um, Very picturesque place, lovely place to be for the players and caddies sort of towards the last third of the year. So Maria's looking forward to getting over there. It's a weaker field probably because of the schedule and that's why Maria's career earnings got her into the event. Uh, Because of the poor scheduling, a lot of players and caddies are struggling to get over to the West Coast and get back to where they're playing in the next few weeks. So their loss, Maria's gain, and hopefully uh, Maria has a really good week. So looking forward to watching her, maybe even get a little bit of TV time if she's lucky. So or lucky for me and our daughter, Emily, if uh, we can see mum on TV Not one last time, but it's never too late. So looking forward to it. So last week, mentioned a little bit about reconnecting with the grassroots of the game. I had a friend um, who lives in Melbourne, Florida. I went over to play at his golf course in Suntree, and it was the little things that he really enjoyed about his golf course as a member, you know, the new pitching area, the new putting green, this hole's been redesigned, beautiful new clubhouse has been redesigned, refurbished. So I was talking about how, you know, in the professional golf world as players and caddies, both myself and Maria, we had a jet-setted lifestyle for 20, 25 years where we just flew into a golf course um, straight from the airport, hotel, hotel the golf course, golf course, rental car, back to the hotel, and you just fly in, you fly out. Before you know it, you're in another different city, you know, six days later. So you really lose sight of what the uh, investment the members have made at each particular golf course around any part of the world. And um, I wouldn't say you become dismissive of it, but it's nice now that we've kind of settled off the traveling circuit. When you go to a golf course and you see a friend of yours who's invested in their own golf course, you see the little things that they really enjoy. And it just has taken me back over the last week since I experienced that, mentioned it to you on the podcast. And I just felt like, you know, do I do a good enough job of remembering the small little things at my golf course? So even though Bay Hill is a famous golf course with the Arnold Palmer Invitational, the home of Arnold Palmer, basically, and it's the little things that I just wanted to reconnect with this week. I did a simple thing this week. And there's a beautiful, nice porch there right below the pro shop uh, window, basically. 
And even though it's the middle of summer and it's stinking hot, on a couple of occasions this week, I just sat there on the deck chairs there and just took in uh, the buzz of the place. And it's a quiet time at the moment. It's only going to pick up speed and uh, vibrance in the next month or so as the golfing season really kicks in, as the weather starts to change. But I just made sure I sat there and took a little bit in of the simple things, you know, our putting green, our driving range, the, the history of some of the holes there. So just making sure that I'm not getting too disconnected with the game despite uh, or not with the game but just getting disconnected with my own members golf course so it was a nice little reminder with my friend over in Suntree that the little things mean a lot and it took me back to when I was a junior golfer in Adelaide Australia and I went to become my my first membership at my first golf club the Grange Golf Club which was a 36-hole complex designed by or has been designed one of the courses by Greg Norman but I remember going there and it's the small little things on a Saturday when I turned up to play as a junior golfer uh, the vibrancy of all the members and I will say here in America it does feel like the Saturday golf competition is really lost over here you guys or Americans seem to play a lot of money games uh, not really sort of regular local competition um, but just as a junior golfer, turning up, playing a stableford competition or a par competition or the monthly medal was really, really important. You got on the golf course and the, the golf course was, you know, cut the night before. The greens were rolled. It was really good. It was simple stuff that you just absolutely loved and you were so proud of being part of. So, um, you know, so a recent experience with a friend had me reflecting on Bay Hill, uh, which I don't take for granted. I still take that into consideration of how fortunate I am to, fortunate enough I am to be there as a member with Maria. But then it just had me reflecting a little bit today as I sat there underneath the, uh, the pro shop window, just thinking, you know, what, what are the simple things that junior golfers really enjoy as well? Um, you know, everything seems so big and magnified as a junior golfer. Everything seems so big and magnified when we're smaller and younger anyway. But you go to your first golf course and everything feels fantastic. And especially if it has some prestige to the name of it. So just a nice little reflection on the simple things that I wanted to get across that is not lost with me and Maria, despite us uh, working at a very elite level. We're always trying to reconnect with local golf courses and members that are really proud of those golf courses. And that was my little side story of reflection for this week. So did want to bring up some questions. Question time a couple of weeks ago, we like to call it question time. We're always gathering uh, questions that come from either social medias or people that we've connected with during golf lessons and uh, anything that comes up that we could kind of regurgitate or bring back onto the uh, podcast for anybody else to benefit from uh, from this information. I always like to do that, kind of bring it down to three questions. The first one came from, actually came from Instagram. And this question came, it said, can you explain the week, the general week of a, of a professional caddy when you're on tour? And that was, uh, that was a question when I, when I read it, I thought, well, gee, a lot goes into that. How do I explain that? So I thought I'd take you from basically a Monday through to a Sunday and kind of give you a little overview so everybody can understand professional caddies and, and the rhythm they work to. So let's just say I was coming from a week off, coming from home, or I was coming from the previous week at another tournament and I come to a new destination, a new tournament. Let's just say, for example, uh, on the PGA Tour, we go from uh, the LA Open and we go to play the San Diego Open, okay? So what I'm going to be doing is I'm either going to get, get into that tournament on a Sunday night 
or a Monday morning. And the first thing I'm going to be doing on the Monday, every caddy, most caddies will be doing this, pending the schedule of the player. But generally the Monday is the day off to get to the next destination. And then you've got to go and do some homework. So even if you've been to the golf course many, many times over the, over the years and nothing's really changed, it's really important to get out on that golf course on the Monday and walk the golf course. What what does it mean by walk the golf course? Well, I haven't got my player with me. I haven't got the bag with me. And I'm just walking the golf course with the yardage book. I might walk it with some other caddies. I might walk it by myself. I preferred to walk it by myself um, because you can just concentrate on setting up your yardage book for the week for your p- specific player without any sort of distractions of laughing and joking, although that's important as well with other caddies. Uh, Other caddies like to walk together. Some guys walked in twos, threes, fours, um, just because they were familiar with the golf course. But I just generally, I was a bit of a lone wolf, uh, not surprisingly, out on the golf golf tours. Um, Just like to do things by myself and um, walk the golf course. So what we generally do is you get your yardage book from the week uh, from the year before, and if any you find out if anything's changed. So what has changed? Anything structurally changed? Was there a redesign? Was there a bunker move? Was there a green redevelopment? And if nothing's changed there, you're just walking the golf course, just checking off the most essential things. So there on every tee box. Uh, on the PJRL PJ Tour, there's basically a white line that the rules officials put out, and that's the designated the furthest back the tees will be for that on that hole for that particular week or day. Okay, so you work from there on every hole. So when I look out from the tee box and I start to go through what's my player going to want to know here, I'll look at the runout. So on a particular angle, how far is it from the white line to a particular runout where the rough cap cuts in or the bunker cuts in or the or the lake cuts in okay so i'm looking for the runouts how far can the ball actually go on this line before it runs into trouble likewise i'm also looking for any carries how far is it to carry the corner of this fairway how far is it to carry the corner of that uh, bunker okay so you're putting in your runouts and your carries what i'm also putting in, in in there is my compass points for my wind direction so i want to know where the wind direction is coming from every time so any caddies throwing up grass that you've seen over the years or if you throw it up yourself it's really inaccurate because the wind swells a lot so you, you, you get your weather forecast each day uh, the pga tour and lpga actually provide that on the first tee and you see the the time periods of where the wind direction is is predicted to be so if i have my compass point on the on the first hole or the third hole or the 18th hole i'll always know where the prevailing wind is coming from so i have staple standard information to provide to my player under pressure where the runouts are where the carry is where the wind direction is okay elevations as well what is it from this tee box down to the fairway or up to the landing area okay finding out whether it's six yards up 10 yards down it's going to make a difference to club selection so doing that from every tee box uh, then get, walking along the fairway to probably the middle of the fairway, but to a point where there's an obstacle. It might be a layup area. It might be a tightness or a tapering of the fairway. It might be a change of direction and finding out well, where all the sprinklers are there, which are in the yardage book, but just double checking where they all are because under pressure as you're caddying, um, you don't want to be starting to search for sprinklers. You don't know where they are because you're on, under the clock you're under pressure from your player. You want to keep a nice symmetry and rhythm to everything you're doing. So you, it's really important to have done your homework on the Monday. Monday is the day for the caddies to really walk the course from tee box to landing area, landing area uh, up to layup areas and layup areas under the green. So you're familiarizing yourself with every bit of information that you need 
just in case things change. And what I can mean by things change is if the wind direction is one day southeast, the next day it might be coming from the north, I want to know where that wind direction is so I can adjust accordingly each day, okay, because I've got my information in my yardage book. There can never be enough information you have in your yardage book, but a great caddy will then only provide the relevant information under pressure. Too much information, not a great reputation, okay? So relevant information under pressure. So that comes from your homework on the Monday. In and around the greens, I'm walking all the little carries on the greens. So when I say the carries on the greens, what am I talking about? All the little undulations, um, I want to know in my yardage book what it is from the front edge to the bottom of this ridge, to the top of that ridge, to a little fall off past the corner of the trap here, past the corner of the trap there, past the the pond, all the little carries, all the little destina- all the little points and destinations in the green that I'll need to know to deliver to the player once I give him the front yardage and then the pin position, knowing all those little extra bits of information. What I also did on the uh, on for many, many years on both PGA and LPGA Tour, but it was really more relevant on the PGA Tour, I wanted to know what was around the greens as well. Was it shaved on the back left? Was there thick rough on the, on the front right? Because it's very hard to see when you're 200, 220 yards away. And if your player asks that question, if I go a little long left here, not that he's trying to, but if he does and he makes a club selection for that, if he goes a little long left... Is he going to be left with a very difficult chip shot? Is it way below the green? Is it? And he can't remember either. We play so many golf holes and so many rounds of golf that it, you can. And also, the year before it might have been shaved. This year they might have let the rough grow. So you're doing your homework. You're also doing your green surrounds. I found it invaluable to know that information to my guys when I played uh, when I caddied for them on the PGA Tour. Certainly didn't play. I caddied for them, um, knowing that I'm not going to stumble and mumble under pressure. So. Monday is all about your numbers, getting all your relevant information in your yardage book. And then your player will probably meet you on a Tuesday, okay? So you're recovering on Monday night as well. You're recovering from the week before or the weeks before. And you're just recovering in your hotel room. And Tuesday comes around. It's normally an early morning practice round that guys will try and play. And they'll either try and play nine holes if they're familiar with the golf course and if they're playing in the prime on the Wednesday, or they'll play a full 18 holes, and they'll be playing with by themselves or with a couple of friends and they'll be laughing and joking. But during that practice round when you're now carrying the bag and you're working with your player, it's lighthearted. Uh, it's not as quite as serious, which is we'd like to try and do that during the actual tournament rounds. But, of course, expectations go way up. But I'm finalising my information. And, and my guys, whether it be John Senden or Bryce Mulder, or my two guys I worked with for so many years, they might ask different questions that I have to also add extra information into my yardage book that they've seen or they've wanting to know based on their experiences of that golf course. So I can have all the information I think is correct uh, for my player, but then he might say something else that I'll just add in there. Hey, he might say, I want you to know where that is or have you thought about that? So um, just making sure that we're doubling up on the information. So then when it comes to Tuesday afternoon, you're pretty much just hitting some balls and the players are kind of working technically a little bit, um, knowing that they're probably going to wind that down as Wednesday comes around because Wednesday you're either playing in the Pro-Am and you're committed to a full day on the golf course where you're entertaining the corporates, um, both as player and caddy because the caddy is representing the player. So if you're playing in the Pro-Am, it's a full day on the golf course. Um, the players do play their own ball. Um, there's scrambles as well, so it's hard to really get an idea of scoring. You don't really want to be scoring during a Pro-Am. But once again, you're just 
starting to fine tune your information a little bit. So by Wednesday night, you should be very, very prepared for that tournament. And then whether it's a morning time or an afternoon time on the Thursday, if it's an afternoon time, a lot of caddies would come out in the morning and what they would do is they would walk a few holes outside of the ropes. Um, that is not unfamiliar to do that. In fact, Steve Williams made a, a career out of doing that very late British Open times in the afternoon. He would come out and walk, walk a full 18 in the morning for Tiger Woods from outside of the rope so he can see and get reference points from other players who are actually playing in the morning wave. So he would gather extra information that way. You can't obviously go onto the golf course, but he's now walking the golf course the day of in preparation for his afternoon tea time. I did that a few times, uh, you know, Throughout the course of the year, I liked it, but I also liked to caddy a little bit more instinctual where I felt like if I formulated something in my mind about a pin position and a club selection that another player hit three or four hours before our tee time, before we actually got there, it did feel like I was probably, you know, probably over caddying a little bit. So I found a happy medium. I've somewhere between, if I was unsure about the way a hole was, was being played, I'll go, go out there in the morning if I had an afternoon tee time. But ultimately, if you have a morning tee time, you do have to caddy with what you've got. And uh, if you've done your work between Monday and Wednesday, you should be prepared anyway. So that gets you through Thursday. Friday is the opposite tea time. Um, you try and get Friday is the day of missing or making the cut. So obviously if you miss the cut, uh, you pretty much most of the time, unless a player is, particularly on the PGA Tour, they are pretty much out of there. They've got the means to get back home for the weekend. Uh, whereas the LPGA Tour, financially, although things have changed a lot, they'll probably hang around a lot. Maria used to hang around a lot on the tour. If she missed a cut and the next event was three hours down the road, she's not going to go home. She's going to stay there and use that facility to practice. So if you're caddying for a player that misses the cut, um, you're either going to come back again on Saturday and maybe a little bit early on Sunday morning before you start to travel to the next tournament and do a little bit of practice at that facility. Um, but if the player misses the cut, and they've got a week off the next week, they're out of there. So Friday night, they call it the old trunk slammer. The clubs get thrown in the back of the, the trunk. The trunk gets slammed and that player is down the road to the airport and so is the caddy. So uh, we're, we're going home with it as well. So you've got to get home. You've got to decompress. You've got to pay bills. You've got to see uh, loved ones. So um, especially if you've been on the road for three or four weeks in a row and you miss a cut and you've got the next week off, you're out of there. So if you make the cut, Obviously, you're looking to capitalise that on that on a Saturday. Uh, the field is now cut in half. You're still regurgitating your information. You're fine-tuning it now. You're in competition mode where, you know, you really are getting to the to the meat of the week. And if you're in really close competition to the lead, um, you know, you've now got a rhythm where nothing really is a surprise to you for that particular week. You've seen the golf course under different conditions from Monday through to Saturday. And now it's just about being in the horse race and trying to get your player in and around the lead. And who knows, you'll end up going to win it on Sunday or not. But um, if you're in contention on Sunday and it gets all the way down to the last hole, you are had a great week, obviously. And sometimes you get to Sunday and you're mid-pack, but you're still putting in a great result, a uh, great effort for your player because every dollar counts on the professional circuit. So Monday through to Sunday, that's kind of how it looks. It's a quick overview. And then you'll just repeat, you know, repeat that again the next week, the new destination. Put in, put in the middle of that between Sunday and Monday it might be international flights, might be a, a trip across the country. So you have to... 
um, find another hotel you, which has already been booked. You have to find your destination, settle in again and go through it again. So it's an addictive lifestyle. I loved everything about it, but generally my week from Monday through to Sunday, that's how it worked for 30 weeks of the year. So hopefully that's a long, a good answer. It's a long-winded answer to a question, but I could speak about it for a long time because there's so much that goes into preparing yourself and your player on the PGA or LPGA Tour. So good question, long answer, apologies. Our next one came from Twitter. As a caddy, as a professional caddy, what what advice would you give to a junior if you were able to impart some of your wisdom? So this was a really nice question for somebody to, to give through to me. And what I thought about, I thought, you know, what would I say to a junior golfer if I'm still on the road caddying and not transitioned into coaching, I'm still in caddying mode. And one of the things I thought of that was really important is two things. Understand what playing yardage is. So it's not just the yardage that you shoot in uh, on the laser. So, for example, 176 yards. It's more about that. It's about the playing yardage. It might be 176 to the to the flag, but where's the wind? Where's the temperature? Where's the elevation? What's it actually playing? Because that's going to make a big difference to your club selection. Proximity to the hole. Of course, the closer you are to the hole, the better chance better chance that you're going to hole a putt. So it's about playing outage for junior golfers. And the other thing that I would suggest to them is understand what your playing surface is. If I was caddying, I'm always adjusting to the playing surface each week. So for the average person out there looking at golf courses they all look green and lush but they're playing very differently you might have bent grass greens versus bermuda greens you might have zoysia fairways versus bermuda fairways okay so the playing surface is a big difference so as a junior golfer if you're playing in florida you need to really understand the grain of the grass okay the grain has a huge bearing on putting your speed the read of the putt so if you're in florida please understand the effects of Bermuda grass and come to us at Tour Talk at Marriott Grand Vista is where I instruct now. If you want to understand how to read grain better and become a better putter, if you're in Florida or a high humid, uh, high humid condition place like northeast of Australia or Asia where the Bermuda grass is going to be laid as the golf course uh, for the grass because it handles the heat. It also has a characteristic, a playing characteristic. So you have to understand how to read grain. And of course, that also goes into how to read grain in and around the greens for your chipping. Okay, so understanding what grass you're playing off. If you're playing on the West Coast, let's say Pebble Beach, and you're playing on power greens, which handles those conditions better, but they get bumpy, you have to understand what the bumpiness or the or the pole is going to do between the morning time that you play and the afternoon time that you play, okay? So on the PJ Tour level uh, at Pebble Beach when the greens get really bumpy, a lot of guys have, um, they play with a putter that might be a different loft, okay? So it gets the ball running on top of the top of the green and not bouncing into the uneven surface of the pole. Pole greens grow uh, uneven. So a little patch here grows a little higher than a little patch over there. So it gets very bumpy for the ball. Now, as you look at it on TV, it looks like nothing. But when you're caddying or you're playing at that level and the greens are very, very uh, sharp in regards to the way they've been cut, it does show up a lot of the characteristics. So as a professional caddy to a junior golfer, I would say look at your playing yardages and understand how to adjust to that. And then also look at your playing surface and put the golf swing to the background and understand how to get the playing perspective and the playing performance going 
better first. That'll bring down your scores, okay? So as a professional golf caddy, that's what I would try and get my players to do for a junior golfer. The next question, and this did come from my uh, teaching at the Marriott Grand Vista this week. It's And one particular man asked me yesterday, just in a general conversation, uh, as he was getting to wanting to know my experience, and he said, you know, what is your coaching directive with each student? And I thought, gee, that's a really good question again. And I said, look, the one thing I make sure I do is I, I really want to make sure that I empower the student, okay? So the student that comes to me, they're already coming with a self-belief or a belief system thinking they're the student, I'm the teacher, I'm going to teach them, I'm going to tell them. But that is the worst way to learn. We know that from uh, children growing up, that if you just keep teaching and and critiquing and judging, um, it's the worst way for them to learn. So I'm trying to create an atmosphere and an environment for them where they can become self-sufficient, asking them questions about feels of the game. Okay, so they're already coming with a self idea of what a golf lesson should look like. And I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to be able to provide a holistic environment and an approach to them. So a lot of questions asked to them. How do they feel about their golf swing? What's the good things about their golf swing they like? What don't they like? You know, what do they want to get out of the lesson each and every time they come to me? So they feel like if they're empowered, by what they want to get out of the lesson, I can lead them there and they can feel like they walk away with a new experience every time. So trying to my directive is trying to listen better and talk less, okay, and try to get them to fall into a little bit of performance criteria versus just hitting ball after ball after ball. I've, I even go to the lengths. Rather than just tip a bunch of balls out in front of the student and they come for their first uh, first couple of minutes of their golf lesson, they just start hitting balls, I actually keep the balls to myself and I just put one ball out at a time. And the reason why I do that is it slows them down and it gives them great perspective on each ball that's coming out. They hit the ball, they get the feedback, we talk about it, we talk about it away from where the ball was hit. Hit. It's a very, very slow process and it's a holistic process because I want to encourage them to experience what I experienced as a professional caddy with elite players like Maria to understand that a lot more goes into just hitting each shot, especially when you're trying to learn the game. You've got to slow everything down, hit one ball and value that ball. What did it do? What did I cause it to do by doing that? And then I'm there as the instructor to help the student learn from that, okay? So less balls hit, way less balls hit. I see this incessantly in the industry. There's a lot of telling. The coach is just waiting to um, validate by just telling more information without understanding the student. So whether it be young boy or girl, middle-aged person, older player, get to know your student a lot better. They'll be better for it. They will value that that questioning and they'll come back because of that. So that's my directive to coaching really is making sure I'm a better listener and then trying to empower the students. So that's what I kind of stick to. And then, of course, I try to crowbar in the information relevant in, in and around that. Yes, it's always great to answer your questions. Really enjoyed doing them and we'll try and do them on a more regular basis. And of course, on a regular basis, it wouldn't be our Tour Talk weekly golf podcast without the good, the bad and the ugly. Yep. Yeah.
My good for this week is 19-year-old Spanish sensation Alcaraz winning the US Open tennis. Fantastic effort. It's always great when a young person breaks through the mold and achieves something probably well before their years, and he did a fantastic job. A little expanse to that is back in March, myself and Maria and my daughter, we always try to get to the Miami Open to see professional tennis, and we just happened to spend a few hours watching Alcaraz practice. Um, at the time, I think he was maybe ranked around about 90 to 100. He looked pretty good to me. Um, I couldn't envision that he would be number one by September, but he's obviously um, just broken through and got better and better and better, and he's now a major Grand Slam champion, so well done. That was my good for Alcaraz. Seen him when he was 90 in the world and love to see him again now that he's number one. He would only be even better. So well done. My bad, a simple little bad. Obviously, I'm always looking for that little thing that annoys me throughout the week. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe that's not great for mental health. But I was quite, it was quite ironic. I'm driving along and I'm just thinking how big are the info, in, infotainment screens getting in cars now? You know, they've gone from none to five inches to eight inches to 12 inches to 15 inches in a Tesla. These screens are getting bigger and more distractive. And isn't it ironic that they are getting bigger and the hazard light for everybody else's safety is getting smaller and harder to find? I find that unbelievable that the human brain needs to be entertained while driving a car at 50 to 70 miles an hour with such a big screen, looks like a drive-in movie theatre, but the hazard light you cannot find when a fire engine is coming along. So keep that in mind, people, when we're going along, maybe they should be the other way around. Maybe the hazard light should be really big and the screen should be really small. Anyway, that's my cynic side coming out. My ugly... Is Sergio Garcia. Sergio's got himself in the ugly category again because he goes to play the DP World Tour after rubbishing the tour and pretty much anything else to do with um, the DP Tour whilst he now has moved across to the live and he finds himself shooting four over par the first round, withdrawing without any notification to the tour, gets himself back on a plane back to Texas where he lives and goes to a football game and social media sort of jumped on his um, selfish needs of playing a tournament, keeping guys out of the field, although he has earned the right to be in it, uh, keeping guys out of the field that desperately need to be in there to make money to keep their status alive, and he withdraws. A lot of people were saying that that was pretty ugly, and Sergio has done some ugly things in his career, like throwing shoes at people, um, blaming his shoes for slipping, spitting in the cup, which was absolutely ridiculous, spitting in the cup and letting the groups come behind to find a nice deposit from his mouth in the hole as they went to pick their ball out of the hole. And now he's just doing quite petulant things. So as much as I'm a big supporter of Liv uh, or growing the game, I don't think Sergio's really growing the game or showing a great reputation of junior golfers coming through. So that was my ugly. So good, bad and ugly, short and sharp this week. And we're looking forward to getting Maria back next week where I'm going to be away. So she's going to be the Lone Ranger on the podcast and we can then sit back and maybe compare our abilities to work alone. Until then, please remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And please remember, we walk the walk. Now let's talk the talk. See you next week. 